0: from the trails to the road to the track. If it's running, you'll find it right here on Trail Tales ARP. Run wild. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Trail Tales ARP. I'm your host Sean Sobon and joining me today is Mr. Bill Gairdner. Bill competed in Japan for Canada in the 1964 Olympics competing in the decathlon and the 400 meter hurdles. And Bill is 80 years old today and still living a very active lifestyle. And I would actually bet money that he's more active than most of us listening right now. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, thank you so much for joining me and welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like I told you on the phone the other day, it's not every day I get to talk to an Olympian. So this is this is really an honor and a Canadian Olympian at that. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah, before my time, but so amazing. So yeah, thank you very much, Bill, as you know, you know, this is a running podcast and a couple of weeks ago, I'm just for our audience listening, I had a a friend of yours and a friend of mine now, Gene Balfour was on the show and we talked about his marathon running in the past and uh, how he's into Nordic cross skating now. And during our conversation, he mentioned that uh, he ended up meeting you, I think it was through a fitness institute in Toronto that you
1: owned yeah he used to work for us
0: yeah he used to work Mm -hmm. for you and that's how he got introduced to you and then you kind of got him into uh uh, i guess cross-country skiing and then that transitioned him into where he is at today but you know this is this is a running podcast and like i say in my in my intro um if it's running you'll find it right here And, you know, sometimes running takes us to different areas and, you know, there's a lot of cross training (laughs) involved that runners do, like cycling I do myself or swimming or what have you. So we're going to talk about stuff that's not necessarily running today as well, but why don't you take me back to the beginning, Bill, and um, let us know what it was like um, for you in in your earlier years when you were, um, you know, getting into running or getting into athletics in the first place. How did that all start for you?
1: Well, it really started when I was very young. I um, I went to a boys' school in Oakville. Okay. It was a boarding school when I was 10 years old. I kind of got dropped off there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was long from home, and I was a sickly young boy before that. Um, but I found out that I could outrun other kids, which was helpful when you're in a school where some bullying takes place, you know. <laughs> there you go. You know the old knuckle duster. You know, right on the bone of your arm. There, you know. Oh yeah,
0: I I have an older brother. I used to get those when I was younger. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So I learned how to run pretty fast and um, did very well at school. And then I thought, okay, where do I go from here? And I guess just, frankly, I guess psychologically speaking, running somehow I got healthy from running and winning races and things like that. And uh, and for me, it became a a way of escaping sickness okay like symbolically i saw it, fitness and running as a way of escaping my childhood sickness and i began to idealize the whole thing i thought this is wonderful this is what i need to do for the rest of my life you know and so uh, one of the teachers at the school gave me a pair of track spikes, which I had never seen before. We were just running in, you know, running shoes. Sure. He gave me these spikes, which he had used as a young boy. And I thought, oh my, this is great. And then I, he gave me a book on track. And I used to get hit over the head at night after lights out because I'd be reading that book <laughs> under the covers of my bed, you know, with a flashlight. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's how the dream started. And then um, uh, at that school, I was a big frog in a small pond. And I didn't realize how small until I met my coach, Lloyd Percival, who at the time was probably the most famous coach in the country. And um, he took me to a track meet, my first track meet outside the school in Hamilton. And he entered me in five events and I basically came last in every one of them. And I couldn't understand it. You know, what's what's all this? How come I was winning all these victories and now I'm coming last and everything? And I didn't realize that part of the problem was his coaching was so good and he was so technically proficient that he was changing my technique and everything. So I kind of forgot how I used to run like a mongrel, you know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, but I hadn't yet learned how to run beautifully, which is what he was interested in teaching, like highly uh, efficient, you know, kinesiologically perfect motion of the legs and all that sort of thing. Which you know is how you get better. It's it's interesting because I ended up going on a track scholarship to the University of Colorado um, after high school, and um, I read a study which basically proved that it was studying a university track athletes at American colleges, and it basically showed that that even though most of the athletes at the end of their four years. Were about 20% faster than in their freshman year,
0: And yeah. whatever
1: event. In whatever event you were studying, they were no fitter. Really? Oh, so it all
0: came down to to body movement, I
1: guess. Efficiency, came down to technique, right? And right. I became the technique expert because I wasn't that naturally fast or gifted or tall. But I'll say the 40 meter hurdles. There's a differential between your flat 400 and your hurdle time of a for an ordinary hurdler about Three seconds, three and a half seconds difference. That's how long, how much slower he will be in the four hurdles. My differential was about two and a half seconds. Oh, wow. A lot of guys are like four seconds type thing. You know? So I could beat a lot of much better athletes than me with incredibly efficient hurdling, you know? Like I was back on the ground running when they were still in the air, you know what I mean? Yeah. On, on each hurdle. And that's what made the difference, you know?
0: Wow. So you, your technique really put you head of the curve in that event, especially.
1: It was very important to me, and I got terribly distressed in Tokyo because, you know, I'd never been in the Olympic Games before. The year before, I won the silver medal in the Pan Am Games in Brazil. Okay, I had been in international competition, but not like this, you know. So, warm-up was incredibly important to me. Like, you can win or lose a race on your warm-up, especially when there's technique involved, like hurdling. If you let yourself cool off too soon, if you don't have the right combination of sweatpants you're not doing the right stretching and technique work you're gonna cool off and you're gonna blow the race you know so at the games I'm all ready to go on the warm-up track and I just can't wait to get in the blocks and they grab you and they put you in this waiting room and they make you sit on this bench with about a hundred other athletes I don't know officials and you have to sit on this bench in other words the very muscles that you just got warmed up to run you have to sit on the damn things. Like oh. 45 minutes and cool off. You keep right. no place to get up and go walk around or, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, and I got I, I panicked. Oh my right. God, blow my warm up here, you know?
0: Yeah. So, so doing that really put you in a situation you hadn't had any experience in. And I guess it was a surprise to you at the time.
1: Nobody does. And then they, they march you out in a long file to the, the starting blocks and they expect, they expect you to get in the blocks and run. Like you have, you have no time to run over those hurdles you've already done that outside the stadium and the warm up track yeah that kind of thing so it was a bit disconcerting for a guy who relied on the uh, sophistication of the warm-up you know yeah in in
0: a in previous competitions um how much time would normally lapse between your warm-up to the to the start line
1: uh, not much. And, you know, on a less formal meet than that, you could take advantage of it. Like they call you to your blocks, but I'm not going now. Just <laughs> let the other guys, the wind is blowing. It's cold. Let the other guys take their sweats off and they can stand there and shiver. I'm not right. not doing that yet. You know, <laughs> a little pre-race hey, strategy. Lane, eh? lane, four, lane four, where's lane four? That kind of thing. <laughs> right here. Sir, here. Sir. And you run over, pull them off and go, you know, yeah, yeah. That kind of thing can win a race. In fact, it won me the Canadian Championships that got me in the Four Hurdles in Tokyo. Amazing. Wow. So, so in Montreal, when I ran that race, it was the first time I'd ever run the Four Hurdles. I'd run the 300 Hurdles, but never the Four Hurdles. It it's quite a difference. Yeah. But in Montreal, where the trials were, oh, man, that wind was so bad and cold. I mean, the TV towers, you know, they have all the plastic on them. They're all just rattling and snapping, you know. Some guy would lose his program and it would fly across the field. I thought it was going to Montreal. <laughs> 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 but anyway, I just I just held off to the very end and pulled my sweats off and went. And I won that race because of that. You
0: know? Oh, wow. That's amazing. And that was your first time competing in that distance.
1: In that distance, yeah. I'd done the 300 hurdles quite a bit, but not the 400 yet. Sure, sure. And I was running against the Canadian champion and he was pretty sure he was going to win. And we came out the last hurdle leg for leg. It was leg for leg into the wind, and oh, wow. it was, I feel the ground shaking. And you know, oh man, you know, <laughs> but I managed to beat him, so that was good.
2: Yeah, yeah,
0: it must have been pretty close at the end. It was. Yeah. yeah, it's it's amazing when you get to you know I'll never be in competition that at that high of a level. Not many people do get there, but uh, you know, like you said, it's it, sometimes it's just a fraction of a second, it's a
1: minuscule thing that will be the difference between first and third or fourth evening. Eh? Oh, totally. I remember the best, I was on the way to the best race of my life in Bakersfield, California, a few years, a couple of years later, and um, one of the officials had put the hurdle in the other guy's lane, just a little bit over the line, like three inches. But it was just over the line enough, and I was running kind of on the line, you know, for efficiency. And I'm coming around the corner on the seventh hurdle, and I see this other guy's hurdles sticking into my lane, and I had to veer, and that was it, over.
2: Yeah, something like you that, couldn't, eh? And,
1: couldn't make it up, you know. Just yeah. threw your pacing off, and
0: yeah, virtually no margin of error, really, in, in that type no, of competition, no. eh? Amazing. Um, so let me ask you, Bill. You know, you've you've been in the game for a long time, and you know, you you um, discovered, you know, how um, efficient movement and technique can really make a difference, um, you know, it's not necessarily somebody's fitness, like you had mentioned in, in those studies between freshman year and final year in, in university. Um, has much changed in terms of the, the way people are coaching um, back then to today in terms of, you know, techniques and things like that? Or is
1: it pretty much the same? Well, if you're talking about biomechanics, yeah, uh, that sort of thing, I would say not much has changed. Um, a good biomechanic uh, coach with a good knowledge of biomechanics can figure out what the essential movements are. The question then is, can he communicate them effectively? Uh, Um, My coach was terrific at that. And and if you don't mind the immodesty, I created a track many years later for about 10 years, and I got pretty good at that too. I enjoyed how it is you put the image in a kid's mind mm -hmm. to get him to do it. Well, nowadays, it's a bit easier because you can take videos you can take with your phone. Sure. But in my day, in my day, it was like, you know, uh, a camera or something, and you had to go get it developed. And then you go sit at the coach's house, you know, 10 days later and look at it. But right now, you can do it right on the spot. Here, yeah. Here's what's happening when you're going over the bar. Here's what I want you to do. And then you explain how, you know. Yeah. Right. Got A high jumper going, you know, If you want to get your hips up, you got to drop your head. You're not dropping your head. You're going like this instead of like that. So your hips are not going to go high enough to get over the bar, you know, explaining that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Pleasure, you know?
0: Amazing. So when, when you were being coached like that and kind of refining your technique, was it, was it a lot of work for you to, to make those adjustments or did you find it fairly uh, easy?
1: Well, I learned from the best. My coach was great at communicating this kind of stuff. And he was inspiring. Lloyd Percival, you know, he was the kind of guy, if you walked into his office and he started talking to you about your potential, you'd feel like you could fly. You'd ask him where the window was, you know, <laughs> so you could try it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I like inspiring kids that way, too. It's just great uh, to get them excited about an event, you know. Yeah. uh technically speaking i mean if you wanted me to share a little story with you Please do. I was at, when i was at the university of colorado one of the guys on the team was bill toomey well bill toomey won the gold medal and set the world record in the decathlon in 1968 in mexico unbelievable athlete i never saw an athlete like him he was so incredibly gifted but he didn't know a damn thing about the decathlon So when I left Colorado, I graduated in January. I wasn't coming back to Canada. Oh my God, you know, no indoor tracks then, nothing. You had no place to run. So I just had to train on the golf course in a foot and a half of snow with my dog. (laughs) Like it was a mess. So I left Colorado and I went to California where Bill was already doing a master's degree at Stanford. And he wanted to be a decathlon man. He was already very good at some of those events like the long jump, the javelin and so on, but he, didn't know anything about the shot, the discus, the hurtling, you know, which I, I knew something about. So I basically got him started in the decathlon. And when I met him, he couldn't even bench press his own body weight. And I said, Bill, for God's sake, you need some strength. And I introduced him to the weights, the weight training, and but always specific weight training, not just weight training. You don't want just muscle, you know? Yeah. If you're gonna do a bench press type motion, you have to arrange it so it's exactly in the angle of the shot where you are putting the shot because looking okay. at some other angles is not as good you know. so I'm teaching Bill all this stuff and he just went by everybody wow. and in Mexico he just he ripped it wide open I don't know what you know about the 40 meters but you know 40 meter times Yeah. so at the time I think the Canadian record in the open 400 meters was about 45.7 I think Bill Crothers said it or someone like that Okay. That was pretty good. So here's a decathlon. First day of the decathlon in Mexico City at high altitude. Bill Toomey runs his 40 meter heat in 45 6 alone. Oh. Wow. After a 12 hour day. And yeah. I'm going to. I'm going, oh man! You know
0: <laughs> the potentials there, and 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 being at altitude, was there much time to acclimatize to that different to the atmosphere there or no?
1: Well, he probably took a few days, I'm sure. Although he spent three years in Colorado, like I did, where which is about six thousand feet, so sure. you know it affects you at first, and then you adapt. You know,
2: yeah, yeah, absolutely. Affects you
1: more in a distance event, yeah, than at uh, say four hundred, yeah,
0: yeah. Out um, of out of all the events in the decathlon, Bill, which was your favorite? Was
1: it the hurdles? Yeah, I was probably better. I was better at the running and hurdling and the throwing than I was at the jumping. The jumping, All the jumping events were weak. The pole vault was an interesting story. And I still to this day regret that uh, I never sort of devoted the time I ought to have to that event. So I probably dropped a couple hundred points easily. However, I should say that when we first started, The pole was a steel pole. Okay. No flex in it. So it was actually a pole vault. The pole vault is gone now. It's been gone for about 25 years. It's now it's now um a catapult event because because the pole bends and it basically throws you over the bar. Mm -hmm. And if you know what you're doing, you'll go over it properly, but it'll throw you anyway. You know, so it's a catapult event. The actual pole vault is gone. And I would say, not to um, try to outrank these guys. I mean, obviously, they're super athletes, but none of the catapult guys today could actually pole vault on a steel pole. It would rip their arms out. They're not strong enough. They're not, you know, in those days, you had to be very gymnastic, a lot of strength in the upper body. You don't need that now. They do have some, most of them, but nothing like you had to have before. So that's an interesting in a situation where, where technology has actually changed a track event entirely, just like it changed the high jump. In mm. my day, if you were in the high jump, you had to jump over the bar and land on a sand pit. Well, you weren't going to go over on your back, believe me. No, no, that's for sure. So it was the evolution of these big foamy pits that changed the event. People started saying, well, if I don't have to care about how I fall, why don't I just go over on my back, you know, and get a little more height?
0: Yeah. I, I have a distant memory of of uh, learning a little bit how that high jump changed in the transition because if, if memory serves correct, people used to, like you said, they'd jump and try to go forward. And then at some point it evolved and they would jump and go over on their back first, right? Yeah, like what well,
1: used to be kind of a roll or straddle, you'd go over a yeah. lead leg, straddle. The bar would be right like this. You'd be actually able to, almost kiss it on the way over you know yeah yeah not on your back like now it's actually a screwy event if you ask me now (laughs) because because, uh, it's not really a high jump it's a back flop yeah pretty much
2: you're (laughs) describing it pretty good yeah Yeah.
1: if you want to see a real um natural high jumpers there's some videos on youtube showing some of these african tribesmen jumping over a bar the way we used to high school kids unbelievable See it; they just oh, wow. run up and jump over the damn thing, and they land on their feet on the oh, other wow. side.
0: I'll have like, to get some links for those, some videos, and put those in the show notes so, so everybody's yeah, listening believe, can watch it. You that. wouldn't
1: believe it, you know. I, if I find it, the one I remember, I'll, I'll send it to you.
0: Please do; that would be that yeah. would be amazing. It's it's right. interesting. I want to go back to the pole vault real quick. So so back in the day, you used to have the steel pole, which is virtually not going to have any flex really to it. So zero, zero. So uh, I guess there's a few questions with that. So. Did that change the technique from what I would be familiar with now where you're kind of running? Obviously, you see the current poles, they flex. And like you said, you just got to hold on and and move your body properly. How would you get up in the air with the steel pole like that? Like you mentioned you need a lot of upper body strength.
1: Absolutely. Well, when you're running with the pole, your arms are apart. But as you push it towards the box, you had to bring your two hands together on the pole. And you Uh. would go up with both your hands over your head. And you'd have to pull yourself up, turn around and push off over top of the bar by yourself and the pole would take you up, but you had to do all the rest of the gymnastic action. Whereas now you leave your hands apart and you actually flex the pole, rock, rock back with your knees up and you're going up. And what you do after that is I think a lot simpler than what we had to do. So I was caught in between the two because it was just coming in and took. In fact, uh, the world decathlon record holder CK Yang at the time was also one of the world's best pole vaulters, you know, and uh, they changed everything. I mean, the flex pole came in, but the decathlon tables changed. He got screwed, actually.
0: Yeah, sounds um, like it. it was just in that in that time where they were transitioning. Um, do you know off the top of your head how the, the new technology in the poles affected the the records that were there, right? Because I'm, I'm assuming that there must have been a drastic change in, in the heights that people were able to. Well, evolve. they're going
1: a lot higher now than, like, before Tokyo, I think the record was just under 16 feet. Now they're close to 20 feet. Oh my goodness, that's a big Unbelievable. difference! Unbelievable. See, it's actually very dangerous. There's a organization. I think it's in Connecticut somewhere for the study of uh, international study of sports injuries, mm-hmm. and they say that per capita, because not a lot of people pole vault, um, the pole vault is the most dangerous sport you can do. Guys who break their necks because the pole breaks. Used mm-hmm. to break a lot more than it did now. It scared me initially, you know. You I didn't bet. know which way it was going to bend sometimes, you know. Now they're kind of pre-flexed a little bit, but to see one of those guys go up in the air and the pole breaks, some guys got impaled on them, oh. injured. Other guys, I remember a guy named Brian Sternberg. He was a world record gymnast at the time, and he became a pole vaulter at the American University, and he fell and um, and uh, broke his back. And uh, years ago, when I was actually writing a book on track and field, a guy in Minnesota fell right down into the box and broke his neck and died just like that. Boom, you know.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: Yeah. So there's a lot of risk involved uh, with a sport like that. And I think the fact that it's the pole allows you to go so high is part of it. You know, the higher you go, the harder you fall.
0: Absolutely. And I'm, you know, there's a lot of kinetic energy behind that, I guess, too, especially with the flexing pole now. You're, like you said, it's a catapult.
1: There's been actually some people arguing that they should take some of the flex out of the pole and they should uh, shorten the pole so you can't, can't throw yourself so high and use more of your body to, to get yourself over the bar and less of the pole.
2: Mm-hmm. Probably yeah. not
1: going to go anywhere. It's, it's all TV, you know?
0: Yeah, exactly. I guess, you know, who knows, if they made it a little bit safer, maybe more people would be inclined to, to participate in that one. Maybe,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah, wow, that's pretty interesting. I'm learning a lot of stuff from you, Bill. <laughs> uh-huh. So. Um, so- I wanna ask, I guess, going back to your your Olympic experience, is there any one kind of moment or memory that really sticks out in your mind as to something that was pretty special for
1: you? Uh, With the Olympic experience? Yeah. Uh, Well, it had been five years of dreaming or more, and uh, so it was just, I was very proud and pleased to get there. Unfortunately, I got very sick just before my decathlon. My mom and dad and I, because they came to watch, uh, we thought, we'll go for dinner but we'll go someplace safe so we went to the Tokyo Hilton just assuming it would be really good food you know uh, being careful my dad and I both got terrible dysentery Oh no! I was up almost the whole night before we couldn't find the team doctor he was in town with the geishas and all that you know and he didn't get back (laughs) till four o'clock and I had terrible cramps so I ended up I must have lost eight pounds that night and couldn't eat anything the whole first day Oh, dear! So it was almost a question, am I going to withdraw or just get this done? Well, my coach had always said, whenever you're facing a lot of difficulties in life, take them one hurdle at a time. <laughs> you, can't, you can't take all the hurdles at once. So very, I just want to go one event at a time and then don't even think about what's coming. You know, feeling kind of sick. Yeah. And by the second day, I felt a little better, but it, it was uh, very disappointing. Oh, I know. can only imagine. Yeah. Yeah. But these things happen in life and you, you know, it's the old story. It's not your fault if you get knocked down, but it's your fault if you don't get up.
0: Very true. Couldn't agree more with you on that one. Yeah. A hundred percent. Wow. So quite, uh, quite some drama back there for you. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So let's, so let's say, okay, you've, you finished off at the Olympics and where did you go from there in terms of your athletic career?
1: Well, I hate to sound like a belly or I'm not, but the other thing that happened was sure. I was so upset with getting sick in Japan. Uh, well, first of all, life's full of flukes. You know, Here's one that happened to me. I was ready to fly home with the team after the games. But one of the officials came to me and he said, Bill, he said, you know, there's a track meet, a triangular track meet. Triangular means three countries. Okay. USA, Japan, and the Commonwealth, three regions. Uh, They're having a track meet after the games and they don't have a javelin thrower. Would you like to stay and throw the javelin? And I said, well, sure, I'll do that. I said, but how do I get home? He said, well, we'll give you an open ticket. Well, in those days, an open ticket, meant you can, you can go home anytime you want any way that you want. Oh, wow. You know, free. So I thought, sure, I'll do that. So I went to see my mom and dad. They were ready to go home the next day. And I said, I'm going to stay in Japan. You're what? I'm going (laughs) to stay in Japan for a while. I mean, I don't have a job. I don't have a career. I'm going to this meet. And here I am in this amazing country. I'm going to stick around and, you know, try to find myself uh, in this foreign culture, you know? Yeah. So that's what happened to me. So I ended up living with a kind of low-end Japanese family. They didn't speak a word of English, and I didn't speak any Japanese. I lived there for six months. uh, And I went and did that job once and. And so on, and then I taught English to young Japanese students, just conversational English to make a little money and buy food and all that. But I did not want to run again. I just didn't even want to go near the track. I was so disgusted by what happened to me. So, um, but I was intrigued by the sport of judo. So, um, I had met Doug Rogers in the Olympic Village. Now, Doug Rogers was Canada's uh, judo champion. He was heavyweight uh, judo champion. A really nice guy and uh, he was living in Japan at the time and had been for several years. So I looked him up. When I decided to stay there, I went looking for Doug and I found him. He was training at a place called the Kodokan, which is the Mecca of Judo in Tokyo. And I took up Judo and um, everything went well until one day Doug was showing me a move. He was a 260 pound guy, maybe 265 pounds, <laughs> 6'5". And he threw me in a certain move. I don't want to bother explaining it to your listeners, but it's a move where you kind of go over the top and I was going to hit the ground hard. So he pulled on my arm, but he pulled it so hard, he pulled it right out of the socket. Oh, no. I tell you, it made a sucking noise like a shotgun going off. Everybody in the gym stopped. They all knew what it was. They all gathered it around. And there was me sitting on the floor, clutching my right arm. And I thought, oh, my God, what just happened? That was the end of my decathlon. No more pole vault, no more javelin, you know? Yeah. I said, said, holy God, I'm going to go home like this? No way. So I strapped myself up. So the right arm was kind of immobilized. It couldn't go very high. And I changed my grip to a left-hand grip. And three months later, I earned the fastest black belt in the history of the Kodokan. You're kidding. I did. Yeah. Wow. I was married. Mind you, I it sounds like i'm bragging i'm not ready but it was pretty much the fastest they'd ever given and the way they do that is not like here where you go through a whole bunch of ranks before you get your black belt there you can go right from a black belt uh, white belt which is beginner to black belt how you got to beat you got to beat a couple of japanese guys in an open competition and pass and pass the judo exam which is complicated but i passed all the judo exam you know all the moves and everything before this panel of judges. And then these Japanese guys came out and I had to, I had to fight two of them and I beat them both. So I earned my black belts, you know? Oh, wow. What a story. Oh, amazing. Yeah. So then when I got back to Stanford, which is where I went after that, cause I wanted to be a professor in English, of English literature, I didn't want to go into business, which was what my, all my family did. Mm-hmm. So I went, I got into Stanford and, um, I tried the decathlon again, but I, I, I couldn't throw the jab on no way. And I couldn't pole vault. ball. And I thought, am I gonna do surgery and try to work this out? And I thought, forget it. I'm doing graduate studies. I'm just gonna run, straight run. I'll just run hurdles. So um, I became the Canadian champion in the high hurdles and the intermediate the 400 hurdles for the next few years, probably wow. f- five years. So I went to the Commonwealth Games in 1966 in the four hurdles I became I came sixth there and then I went to the commonwealth games again in 1970 in Edinburgh and I came sixth in the final there too so I had a subscription <laughs> sixth, sixth place but it was great to get in the final you know absolutely yeah,
0: yeah so you were still competing well after the olympics and and, and still placing. Yeah, like
1: yeah I had to lose I had to lose about 15 pounds of muscle actually which okay. I did and it took about a year
2: yeah
1: um uh, but you know, I, so I was pretty happy with that. But you know, that event changed too. The tartan tracks came in. In the early days, we were running on cinder tracks. Okay. And uh, I tell you, it's very different. To run on a tartan track is very different from a cinder track, especially yeah. for an event like the hurdles. Especially if the track is just a little bit loose, you know, you're just losing so much. Yeah. Um, sad, you know.
0: So when when you're saying loose, it's a little bit more absorbent, I guess, and it absorbs your energy.
1: Well, the, as well with on, spikes or? the cinders actually can come out of under your foot like you're scooping them out a bit okay. on a very loose track like a hard cinder track's a different matter but it's still you're not you're getting nothing back from it whereas a tartan track has a bit of balance it's almost like these microscopic trampolines under your under your feet yeah you know, you're getting a thrust from the track it's very different yeah. so a guy who's in a 400 hurdle event like i was a 15 stride man you know Okay, today some of these guys on these super fast surfaces, they're 6'3", and they're very fast, flat four hundred guys. They're running thirteen strides between hurdles, like all the way. And I look at them and go, "Oh my God, how do they do that?" You know, <laughs> it's all different species and yeah, all different yeah. technology, different tracks shoes, different everything. You know,
0: it's yeah. amazing how how things can you know stay the same, but yet as as uh, technology changes technique and everything else changes. as well, well, it's
1: funny you say that, you know, what's the name of the Canadian spreader? He's, uh, he did pretty well in the last Olympic games.
0: Oh, Degrasse. Andre Degrasse. Andre, Andre Degrasse. That's and right. What a
1: wonderful finish he has and all that, you know? Yeah. Well, CBC recently, I say recently, a few years ago, maybe two years, they did a very interesting program. You should look at it for your, your viewers. It's a program in which they, they had a cyclist and a track guy and a, I don't know a swimmer or whatever compete in their events today, but with that equipment and on those surfaces, amazing. So they had a uh, cyclist, you know, doing a time trial in this 25-pound steel frame bicycle with <laughs> you know 32 <laughs> spokes on each wheel and all that kind of stuff, and 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 five gears, not 12, you know, that kind of thing. And then they had Andre de Grasse. They had Andre de Grasse running, I tell you, on exactly the same kind of track that I used to train on in Don Mills in Toronto. Where, you know, right beside your hands, when you're in the blocks, there's a weed or something, you know what I mean, (laughs) growing in the track. You know, and it's loose. Yeah. It's not like today. So Andre ran his 100 meters in the track, and I think he was quite shocked to see that he could only run a certain speed. He just couldn't get anywhere close. No to kidding. It. Top speed, no. A just, bit of a humbling experience, I'd say. It was humbling for him, and he was—he's a—he's a sweet guy. Yeah, mm. uh, but so to see him react to it, because the guy with the camera says, "How does it feel running in these conditions?" He said, "I, I actually I can't believe it." He said, "That was hard." Wow. Like, you know. So anyway, that was different. You know, technology, of course, changes all these events.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Especially like if you get into like you mentioned cycling too. Like you have these bikes now that weigh yeah. very little compared to the old bikes back then. Yeah. Eh? very and,
1: broad, light, very stream time, wind, wind tunnel tested. Yeah. Thing, you know? yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Story. It's yeah. amazing. So as <laughs> much as as so much as there'll be
1: more, there'll be more of that.
0: Oh, for sure, for sure. As much as time goes by, you know, the athletes and the training and everything. I would say, you know, pretty much stays the same, I guess. And then it's just like
1: the technology that changes the game and, you know. Well, actually, the the training changes quite a bit. I mean, um, when I tell people that I didn't have a coach after I left high school, I just didn't. I have a funny story for your listeners, I guess. When I went to Colorado, Lloyd had been my coach. Lloyd was fantastic. But when I went to Colorado, so I was a university student now, I'm running my first race for them. And uh, the... Coach there was named Frank Potts. He was a wonderful, sweet, grandfatherly guy. But I mean, this was America, you know. <laughs> and, and I was thinking, now I'm really going to get some coaching. Holy America, the greatest track country in the world. This is going to be fantastic, you know. So I run my first 300-meter hurdle race for the team. In those days, that was the distance that they ran in uh, college. They hadn't graduated to the 400 hurdles yet. Yeah. And so I run my race, and I come about fourth or something. And the coach calls me over. He says, uh, "He he talks like this." He says, "And I'm only uh, imitating him, not to mock him, but because it was sweet the way he would talk." But uh, Bill, he said, Gardner," he said, "You you uh you uh, come over here, you know." And I thought, "Oh boy, he's going to give me the word on my uh, on my race. What can I do to improve?" You know. Yeah. He looks at me and he says, "And I, and, and he's so sincere." And he says, now listen here, Gardner. He says, if you uh, if you uh if you want to win, he says, you're gonna have to run faster. <laughs> and I just about died. If you want to win, he said, you're gonna have to run faster. I was expecting some you know lecture on technique or you know what I had to do to improve. Yeah. All he could say was, you gotta run faster. <laughs> So I did. <laughs> you but I'm, did. I'm just, saying, I'm just saying, the the sophistication isn't there. The American track si- system uh, basically is fantastic because it's a trial by fire. Like it's not like say Canada, where if you're a if you're a top athlete in Canada, you're there. Yep. Yep. Sorry, I lost you for a second. Oh, I'm here. I'm here. Sorry. So if you're a top athlete in Canada, they baby you. I have to say. Like, OK, they know that the big race of the year is going to be the Olympic Games in August. say. Sure. So they try to plan everything out and map everything out. So your best performance is going to come on on that day, that week, whatever, you know, not before, not after. And all the sports science so-called is aimed at making that happen. Mm. In America, forget the sports science. Listen, man, there's, we have a track meet here every weekend. At this university, that's 24 track meets in the season, you're going to compete in every one of them. And sometimes when one of our guys gets hurt, you're gonna to have to run another event that you hadn't even planned on. Oh, like, wow. like, hey, we need you for the relay. <laughs> Coach, I just finished my four hurdle race 20 minutes ago, get your spikes on get over there, you know, that kind of stuff. Oh wow. Well, it's do or die. Now yeah. some, some guys can't stand that they don't like it. They crumble, they get sick, they pull muscles. I loved it. It tougher the better. Let me let me in there. You know, like I just loved it. So, for me, it worked really well. And, and
0: let me yes, yeah. With 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 this type of approach, and they're doing all these all these meets. You know, twenty four times a season. Are they are they out there to win each time? Or are you going out there as hard as you can? Oh, each it's time? all
1: about points. It's all about points. You know, and okay. uh, most of those meets are what they call dual meets. So let's say my university, University of Colorado, at the time against Kansas or something like that there's only four guys in each event points are four, three, two, one, whatever. Everybody gets a point, but the better you do, the more points. And so they're really pushing you. That right, kind of stuff. Right. You know, I'm just saying you're expected to give it all for the team every time. And there's no such thing as whining about how you need some rest.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you
1: well, know, you know, like Bill Toomey, the guy I was telling you about, I mean, he was so tough. You could come into him anytime and say the Olympic games is two weeks away. You better be ready. He'd be ready. No kidding. Yeah. Almost any time. Not like here where we got to graduate everything and-
0: Yeah. Oh, we try early, to peak.
1: It's too early for that. Yeah.
0: You know. Interesting. It reminds me of a, of a phrase I once heard, pretty much it goes, you know, dig your well before you need it. You know, uh, that, that way you're ready. Yeah. Yes. Pretty
1: interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Oh,
0: wow. Well, I love your stories, Bill. You got some, you got some good stuff. Um, it's been fun. Yeah, absolutely. You all know how I love to run with Piper the Wonder Dog. Her safety and health are my number one priority when we're out on the trails together, and that's why I've been giving Piper Big Country Raw's all-natural joint support supplements since she was a pup. Trail Tales ARP is happy to provide you with a discount code for 10% off your order at bigcountryraw.ca. Thrive Joint Support Supplement contains MSN, glucosamine, and chondroitin, which help Piper's joints stay healthy by reducing inflammation and pain. It also provides the building blocks for reducing cartilage and provides increased cushioning for joints by drawing water into the canine joint cartilage. Big Country Raw has an enormous selection of supplements that help promote and maintain digestive health, skin and coat health, and joints support. They also carry a wide variety of all-natural raw pet food and treats. Big Country Raw products are all Canadian-made and use pasture-raised and free-range animals sourced from farmers and processors that abide by safe and ethical standards of care. All fish used are caught in the wild and the vegetables and fruits are all certified organic. Big Country Raw is currently only available in Canada and can ship your order to your door. Some restrictions apply. Visit bigcountryraw.ca and use the code TRAILTAILS, one word, to receive your 10% discount today. Run wild! So, um, when did you end up coming back to Toronto? Because you opened up this,
1: this athletic institute? I did. I uh, I don't want to bore your listeners with a long story here, but I graduated from Stanford, and I got a job teaching at York, teaching English at York University. Okay. I loved I love teaching. It's a noble calling, no matter whether it's coaching or teaching little kids or teaching the most sophisticated subject in the world. Teaching is a great experience, and the one who benefits most from it is not the students but the teacher, because in order to explain to them what you're explaining, you have you have to open your mind to all kinds of ways of getting it across, you know?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You learn more even than the students do, I loved it. Uh, I didn't like York much. York was already a pretty left-wing institution. Now it's a quasi-socialist in tone,
0: you know? Yeah. You can't do
1: anything there without, you know, without- uh,
0: Fear of getting canceled, if you will.
1: <laughs> canceled and social justice theory and all that crap, you know? like uh you know you can't open your mouth about what you really think about something so the university to me is a bit dead now and i'm only saying that because i've got a lot of experience in the university i spent a lot of my life in them sure um
0: in a place that should be you know encouraging open debate and thought they really university i've heard that yeah
1: that's right in the university it's not always true historically because lots of universities have gotten involved in censorship for example I think the last book burning in England took place at Oxford University in 1700 or something like that. Like, that's what they used to do, you know, uh, yeah. the burning uh, books by atheists and all that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. So it's still going on. But and when I was first went to Stanford, it was like um, open. In fact, the motto of the university is de uh, Luftwaffe. I can't, I haven't got the German, but it's in German. And it basically goes where the wind of freedom blows. Mm-hmm. It's no longer true at Stanford. It's a closed institution. And now, all these universities, like Stanford was then, they used to be islands of freedom in the sea of ignorance and and prejudice and all that. But you could certainly speak your mind there. People expected you to. And if they didn't like what you what they heard, they would say, not how can you say that as if you had no right to say it, but why did you say that? What's your reasoning? What are your facts? You, you, you know, whereas today, it's like so much as emotion. And uh, it's over. So many things people don't want to hear. Uh, you know, you may know a bit of my life. I became a writer and a public figure after I left the university because I started writing books on political subjects and political philosophy and moral philosophy. I gave a lot of speeches. Yeah. Still, still give some. Always someone will stand up and say, Mr. Gardner, I'm outraged by what you've been saying. And I look at them and I say, well, you couldn't be more outraged than I am. <laughs> now, what's your point? Yeah. And they look at me like, if they're smart, they realize, okay, I get it. What you're saying is you can't debate my emotions. I said, that's right. Yeah. And you can't yeah. debate mine. But I can debate your argument, your reasoning, and the facts you're using. Let's talk about that. And then if they're smart, we have a good discussion if they're really stupid and don't get it it just crumbles
0: yeah no very very good point we digress a little but yeah there's uh you know it's great to be able to have um intellectual conversations um with opposing views because that's that's how you can kind of learn and grow and expand and you know it's it's important to be able to see different sides uh, of an argument but yeah once you start just focusing on the emotions of it it really kind of Puts everything dead in the water, and you don't really progress, right? right.
1: Yeah, because you can't yeah. debate emotions. Yeah. You know, I have a good friend, a dear friend. He'll pick up the phone when he's talking to me, and if I say something, he thinks is wacko. He'll he'll get upset or emotional, and I'll say, "Listen, forget your emotion. I'm emotional too. What are your thoughts? You know, like, what's your point? You know? Yeah. Oh, okay, okay, I see what you mean. You know, that kind of thing. It yeah, just yeah. it's hard for people to learn that. You know, but uh, and I think we're not teaching it to young people. So we have a frightened society now. I hate to say that about my beloved country, but uh, we have a frightened society and it's especially nasty for young people who, you know, they got to make a living, look after their families and, you know, they haven't got time to run around reading books on political philosophy and moral philosophy and things like that to arm themselves for these debates. You know, so they just shut up. Yeah. Even though they do not agree with a lot of what they're hearing, they just shut up yeah. because it's too hard.
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, I, I totally hear you. It just it's, you know it's one of those things. It's a it's a very um, I guess you know cultural thing. I guess you've you would definitely have seen how things have changed over the years from your time uh, working in the universities, and then oh, yeah. you know you you've written I think it's over a dozen books.
1: Yeah, about 15 of them, yeah. Okay. Are all of them in the kind of political realm? Because you had mentioned... Well, you-, you know, I'll tell you the first, one. I don't know if you want to hear this, but I, sure. I'm actually doing a memoir now and I'm writing about it at the moment, how this happened. Uh, I got concerned about Pierre Trudeau, the father of the present prime minister, who was spending Canada into the grave. And at one time, I think his government was spending about 50% of GDP or something like that. It was huge. Uh, that's not quite accurate, but it was close. It was crazy, you know. And so I wrote a book called The Trouble with Canada um, because I was concerned about where my country was going. Mm. Trudeau Sr., he wanted socialism coast to coast, almost in a Maoist or Chinese style. He I've got his quotes. He publicly expressed his admiration for Mao Zedong the communist ruler of, you know, what we used to call Red China. <laughs> and I'm going, really? <laughs> you know, Really?
2: Yeah.
1: And that, sounds, that sounds familiar. <laughs> and here we are in this British-derived uh, society with common law and free parliament and all that kind of stuff. And you want coast-to-coast socialism? Please, you know. So my wife basically said, why don't you stop bitching and do something about it? She, <laughs> didn't, she didn't say it that way.
2: Right. Complaining,
1: you know. Uh, and I said, how can anybody do anything until they know what the trouble with Canada is? So I said, I'm, I'm going to write a book. That's how it happened. So I decided to write the book and publish it myself, because when I sent it to the first few chapters to these publishers, they sent me back letters. There was no email then. They sent me back these letters saying, how can you say this and how can you say that? And I would say, what do you mean, how can I say it? I did say it. And what's your objection? Yeah. You know, give, me, give me the argument. And they couldn't. And I realized we were really in trouble. So I hired an I hired an editor, the best editor in Toronto. I said I'm going to spend five thousand bucks to get this book done. I want the best type style. I want the nicest cover. I want you know you you handle everything. So I gave him what I had, and I kept writing. He calls me back a month later. He says Billy says I love your book. I said what? He says I love your book. In fact, I love it so much I took it down to Canada's largest publisher, and they want to see you at eleven o'clock tomorrow morning. Oh wow. And I said, wow, I said, an author's dream, right? Oh, my God. So I end up in the author's in the publisher's office the next day. And at the time, Brian, Brian Mulroney was, uh, you know, maybe when I was writing, Trudeau was gone and Mulroney was in. He was trying to do a national daycare plan, not for the needy. I'm okay with maybe with that, maybe. But for anybody, any woman could get this free daycare. You know, she could walk in with her mink coat and her tennis racket and get free daycare. It's paid by you and me. Yeah. And I said, "Come on, you know." So I wrote a letter to Maroney, and I said, "And I said, you're too pink." I <laughs> said, "If you I said, if you don't get more blue, you won't see any more of my green." <laughs> Meaning my money, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the bills, you know. <laughs> so anyway, uh, the long resort of that story is uh, the publisher decided to publish the book, and he didn't think it would sell a thousand copies and i'll tell you my life changed overnight i was on the air for 14 hours live in the first four days the book came out oh my
2: the goodness. first
1: edition sold out in two weeks they did eight more printings and sold 60,000 copies by the end of the day and hit wow. number one hit number one in Canada so that's how my life changed i went from being just a guy who used to be a runner to a professor to a businessman and now i was uh, some kind of public figure which I wasn't expecting, you know.
0: Yeah, kind of just yeah. took you took you by surprise. But I guess you you definitely uh, hit a nerve with with your with your
1: book, right? And, uh, oh, and uh, yeah.
0: led to other books. And
1: well, people, uh, those first radio shows, I got everything from rotten tomatoes to uh, people bowing down and saying, "I couldn't believe someone wrote this." Finally, yeah. someone said this about our country that that kind of. I said, "Listen, the book is critical, but you can't write a good critical book about your country unless you love it." Mm-hmm. Which is what I was doing, you know. So, uh, like, open your eyes, folks. Yeah, you know, Inter- interesting, how, interesting perspectives for sure. Now, if you ask me, if you ask me how I feel after thirty years of uh, writing these kinds of things, because si- since I've written a lot of books, and your listeners might be interested in the most recent uh, book on political philosophy. It's called *The Great Divide*, and the subtitle is basically why. Liberals and conservatives can't agree, you know. Like, Mm -hmm. if you want to find out where you stand, how conservative or how liberal you are, at the end of every chapter, there's a little table that you can look at it and figure out where you stand. And I often get calls from people who say, Oh, I didn't believe it. You know, I can't believe how conservative I thought I was a liberal or vice versa. Right. You know, they may say, I thought I was a conservative, but actually, I'm a liberal, you know, that kind of thing. So the book's very helpful that way. And at least from that point of view, you can get a conversation going with somebody, you know, because it clarifies the underlying differences.
0: Very interesting, Bill. And I think, you know, one of the things you kind of mentioned earlier was the best way to kind of go about these topics, because, you know, these things can get heated and and people, you know, kind of want to draw a line in the sand is, you know, try to take the emotion out of it and just, you know, be respectful to the other party and, and have an open debate where you're open-minded and accepting of other ideas and taking points and and vice versa. eh? Would you agree? Oh,
1: totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, if you're any good at debating, it's a lot of fun because you, you can ask a couple of questions of someone, by the way, I don't advise people to to debate their spouses. I don't debate (laughs) my spouse because I don't want a winner and a loser. Yeah. My wife and I, I mean, you know, we, we love each other we just want to share our views and we're interested in what the other thinks so I advise people do not debate your spouse because there's going to be a winner and a loser and if the winner is always the same person or too often the same person pretty soon there's no debates there won't be any there'll be changes of subject you know yeah, yeah, to, yeah. to escape debating see so you lose that's a lose lose yeah in in a, in, a, in a marriage for example but in a yeah. real debate I really enjoy starting off just by asking someone their opinion on a on a topic say oh okay so that's what you think yeah that's what i think what about so and so so i've got what they're thinking then i ask them my main question and right right away they feel trapped by what they just said not what i said right right i said no but no but you just said do you not are you not standing by that anymore or are you changing your view Well, let me see now, you know what I mean? This is fun, you know? And we need a lot more of that in our society, but we actually do not teach young people how to debate. Now, a good debater actually can debate any topic and any side of any topic. I don't particularly like doing that myself, but a great debater, if you give him a topic and ask him to debate the pro side or the con side, he'll pull his thoughts together and do it as if he believed both sides, if you ask him, Mm-hmm. to debate one or the other right because they understand yeah, how our argument yeah. works yeah oh no, it's
0: very interesting you say that bill because i'm i'm currently uh you know carrying on with my education and i'm in the a, a bachelor of health sciences course and one of the courses i'm just finishing up with you know they would they had us uh, make our own blog and they would give us you know topics to discuss um whether there's opposing views or or standpoints and some of the advice they gave us was you know you have your 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 position that you hold now before you write your post and you you argue your position they want us to go and argue the other side of the position as best oh, no. we as best we can and yeah. then and then once we do that if we still hold our original position we would state that argument and then justify our rationale behind it and I had never had something presented to me in that way, so I found it very helpful with school and in life as well, to really understand. You know, it's easy enough to understand where you are on a certain topic, but to to understand where the other side is is equally as important because a um, it may strengthen your position or b it may make you question your current position. But like hmm, maybe. Maybe the other, there's more validity or merit to this other side of the argument, and maybe totally. I might change my view. And I think that's that's something we all owe ourselves, to be able to do that.
1: Well, it's interesting you say that. Whoever is doing that for you, not to you, but for you, yes, uh, knows what they're doing. Because that is part of our tradition, our ancient tradition. Like, if you go back even to medieval times and listen and read some of the debates of people like St. Thomas Aquinas, who was just as good a philosopher as he was a theologian? I read his philosophy. I'm not that interested in his theology, but his philosophy is fascinating. He will start out by saying, Here's the case. Here are the eight points of this case, which I want to defend. Then he'll say, Here are the five points of my opponent against my arguments. And then he'll go through the opponent's cases. Mm-hmm. Point one, here's what I think about what he said. Point two, here's what I think about what he said. I accept his first two points, but his last three points are wrong and here's why. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So they're not afraid, in other words, to actually uh, give a voice to their opponent's arguments in a fair way, not yeah. you know, belittling the arguments or downplaying them, but giving them with a full strength argument as if they were credible and then tearing them apart.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, doing it in a fair way. So as to show that, you know, you're not, you're not necessarily being biased that you've taken uh, into consideration all angles and, and you're yes. at where you're at with
1: that. And uh, and then you yeah. are more persuasive, right? If you yeah. win your points. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And then it's up, up to the person who's listening to either, you know, dig in their heels and, and keep their position despite, you know, evidence that may convince another person to switch or to you know have an open mind say, you know what, you're right. After having this discussion, I I changed my mind a little bit. You know, and that's okay.
2: I hope
1: hope your views are influential because when people ask me how I felt after 35 years of this sort of thing, Mm I how do I feel? I say I feel like a man who's been standing on a rock in a leftward drifting sea. Canada's been moving steadily leftward towards socialism politically Mm -hmm. uh, never mind the moral stuff which is even worse as anybody can see you as half a brain (laughs) looking at at it you know but i feel i've been standing on a rock and a leftward just drifting sea. and in the distance i hear voices on these leftward drifting ships and you know what the voices are saying look look there's a man out there drifting to the right (laughs) but i haven't moved yeah you know but i look like i've moved but i haven't the whole society has moved and, and I think one of the worst indications of how they've moved is the silence of our young people. They simply don't want to bother grappling with these subjects. They know they're just going to get emotional pushback from people, not decent arguments. So they're not interested. Mm-hmm. So there's two indications of uh, the trouble that we're in one of them is silence, and the other one is unwarranted anger.
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, very interesting points. And, um, you know, it's. Where is my thought pattern here? Um, I forget what I was about to say, but anyways, yeah, it's uh, it's it is quite very interesting. And like you said, when uh, when you're attacked with emotion, you're you're going to be kind of persuaded to stay silent. And you know, it's important for all of us to kind of question question everything as to why things are the way they are. And you know, do do research. And um, otherwise, you know, you're gonna sit there quietly and. If you just want, you know, everything to be kind of happy and and, and go lucky, um, things will change right before your eyes, and you won't even know it, notice it. Yeah, and, right?
1: and what yeah. you said is especially important, I think, because questioning leads to wonder, mm-hmm. and wonder tells you that you're alive. Yeah, absolutely. You know, A wonder of the world and the universe and everything in it. You know. Yeah. And and, and we lose that, we lose that feeling of wonder at existence when we shut down all investigation and contrary opinion and, and so on. We make children of ourselves. So it was a process of infantilization, uh, making ourselves into children. And one of the objections I had in that first book, The Trouble with Canada, to what Trudeau was doing with his charter, was and by the way, a lot of people did not want the charter, especially a lot of judges didn't want it, because they realized that they were going to be forced uh, to pass opinions on the um, value of our laws whereas uh, what they were really only paid to do was to tell us whether our law was in conformity any law that was made was in conformity with our own constitution or not mm. is it in conformity or not with the common law or with legislation yes or no and, uh, suddenly they were they were being asked to to make judgments but about words like equality in other words unelected officials. We're now going to tell you what the meaning of the charter was, not your legislator, not, not the guy or the girl that you sent to parliament. Yeah. And so, so parliament has become infantilized by the charter. And any really difficult issues, especially moral issues, the parliament just says, we're not going to debate this. Come on, kick it upstairs. Let the court decide. Yeah. We're not yeah. going to debate it. Yeah.
0: You know? And then, and like you said, somebody in the court's not elected. And depending on where their political stripes are, you're going to get... Yes, a, legal, illegal, get, a legal judgment out of it, which is yeah, kind and of Then you scary end up with thing.
1: the up situ- The American situation, the Charter mm-hmm. actually Americanized us more than we were, because uh, now everybody's concerned about who's on the bench. Mm-hmm. Are they left wing? Are they right wing? Are they in the middle? You know, and now in America, they're talking about packing the court. Yes, the, yes. Uh, because Trump managed to get more conservative judges in there to, for a majority. So now Biden wants to pack the court and get rid of that problem by adding left-wing judges. Mm-hmm. So this is not the way democracies were supposed to work. It was supposed to be about true debate, true discussion, heartfelt heartfelt discussion which would produce solutions which neither side had ever thought of before because, because they were discussing it.
0: Yeah, and and that that is true progress right there.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no. where a solution comes out of discussion which no one thought of.
2: Yeah.
1: And it's creative. And it's yeah. wonderful, but it's not going to happen if there is no discussion. See?
0: Exactly. Yeah. Discussion is very important, just like what we're having now. And uh, yeah, yeah. I, I can't thank you more for that because it's it's been quite intriguing. And we could talk about that uh, for hours on end, I'm sure. But, you know, let, let's kind of get back into um, your your athletics, Bill, if we will. Um, so right now, when I spoke to Gene last, he had mentioned that you're doing a lot of um skiing obviously now we're into springtime and, and the snow's all yeah. melted so there's not much skiing to be had but uh from what i understand you have you have your own track that you made on your on your land and you
1: did i think yeah. 700 kilometers last winter is that right oh no, at least yeah we used to do more of that i'm 80 now so i do a little less but you know <sighs> uh, i ski every day that i can i skied every day on my property since uh, late november actually pretty oh, wow. much every day unless it was you know raining or something. Yeah. And I have a nice, nice snowmobile and I have a track setter. And I make about a two-kilometer, three kilometer track here, lots of hills and things like that. And the guys come over sometimes. We have little time trials <laughs> and so on. But uh yeah, it's great fun. I love that sport. It's just such a full body, wonderful full body sport. Yeah. And uh I'm critical of running and cycling for that reason because they're half-body sports. Yeah. Running is only about your legs, you're just carrying your upper body along for the ride. I know arm action is important and all that kind of thing, but you're not doing anything. Your upper body isn't expending the energy. In cross-country skiing, especially classical style, well, even with skating, it's almost 50-50 today. Upper body and lower body energy expenditure, you know? Yeah. So you see these cross-country ski athletes, they take their clothes off. They're really ripped, you know? Yeah, yeah. The cyclist, he takes his clothes off. He looks like a drowned rat. (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's true.
1: It's oh, true. Yeah, you got right. these huge, yeah. huge legs and really skinny arms. <laughs> yeah, big thighs and so on. A skinny upper body and yeah. And so, I actually a prediction I'm going to make, which will come true long after I'm gone, is that one day someone's going to invent a racing bike, which will engage the upper body on the hills, so you can ride like you want with your legs on the flats. But as soon as you get to a nice long hill, you can you can do this kind of almost uh, pulling action. Because yeah. there'll be a device on the front wheel and a very special minimal gear that you'll be able to crank the front wheel with too. So guys will be able to stand up and use legs and arms going up the hills. It's going to change the sport. But
2: Absolutely.
0: That, wow, that's a, that's a that's a big prediction. You heard it here first, folks.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. You did.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, that that would definitely change the sport. Um, it's yeah. funny. I always say, you know, no matter what you kind of set your... your um, your goals on whatever sport you're partaking in your body will I think naturally just kind of transform to what the demands of the sport are like swimmers with the big strong upper bodies and everything and yeah. cyclists with the legs um I guess that's why you know cross-country skiing like you mentioned is, is great because it, it uses upper and lower body and I mean at 80 years old I mean, it's 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 amazing to see that you're still out there and you still have got, got a competitive nature. You're doing time trials with your friends and everything out there. Yes, it's, I it's still enjoy
1: fun. it. I, I can still handle about probably five and a half minutes a kilometer on a decent rolling course. Amazing. That's, that's okay. Yeah. When I was younger, you know, we'd do, on a good course, we'd do three and a half, four minutes. Yeah. A kilometer. So it's a little harder when you're older, you know. It's all about stride length. You just, you can't get the, The power in the kick motion you
2: know for a
1: stride light so you're losing three or four inches on every stride at the end of a few thousand strides that adds up amazing and and like we had
0: mentioned just before we started recording today you just you just came back from a from a bike ride you did about 25 kilometers
2: out there today yeah
1: Yeah, i did and i would or i would you i have a nice pinarello road bike it's a beautiful electronic shifting road bike but it's so hilly around here i mean right out of my driveway there's a three-quarter kilometer, 7% hill. You can't get out of here without it, but it's tiring to start that way, you know? Yeah. So I, my son brought me over a road bike. He said, here, dad, try it. E-bike, rather. He said, try it out. Yeah. And I just love it now. And uh, I don't ride my Pinarello anymore because this is more fun. <laughs> I, th- I think it's the future. I even predict eventually it's going to be e-road bike races because they can control how much uh, wattage you get yeah, by examining the motor you have on your bike, and that's going to make a big difference because now, frankly, you watch the Tour de France, and I don't watch it anymore. Once Lance got dinged, I thought it's no fun anymore. He was an exciting rider, and he got dinged for drugs, and now I don't, you know, the sports. Yeah. You know, the big problem with modern sport, you didn't ask the question, but I'll answer it anyway. <laughs> big problem with modern sports is politics, drugs, and money. Yeah. Those three things. Uh, We can't go back, but when I went to Tokyo, I call it the last happy games because it was a happy games. There was no politics to speak of at all. No Mm -hmm. drugs. No one knew much about it. That was by 68. There was a lot of drugs, although they weren't illegal. Right. My my friend Bill Toomey, he was injecting himself with anabolic steroids right in front of everybody. Oh, wow. For the Tokyo Olympics, people said, what are you doing? Oh, you got to try this stuff. (laughs) <laughs> that kind of thing this is fantastic you'll you'll feel stronger you'll be yeah. able to train more that kind of stuff
2: yeah
0: but nobody so this is, found out it this is they before it was like, it was all you know deemed you know, illegal like, and unfair
1: it was like saying well you got to eat a steak for breakfast or something or have a cup of coffee to improve your reaction time the caffeine would give you a shot sure he was shooting up anabolic steroids in the in his uh muscles oh my goodness With needles and things like and then it got banned. And of course he was made to feel guilty for the rest of his life, even though at the time nobody cared. Yeah. That came on later. Anyway, uh, politics, drugs, and money. There were no politics in Tokyo. There was no drugs and nobody I know of was paid. Whereas now it's all about you know sponsorships <laughs> and endorsements and that kind of stuff. And so for me, unfortunately, amateur sport is kind of gone except in the schools. And you can't help noticing that whether, no matter what newspaper you're opening, maybe it's different where you live, but around Toronto, (coughs) you hardly ever see a decent story, say on amateur athletics or school athletics or kids,
2: Yeah. you know,
1: maybe the back pages of a community newspaper. But uh, my wife was a top track and field star in Vancouver. And when she was a young girl out there, she won, four gold medals in the Canada games out there in track and field oh wow oh my, oh my god there were full-page stories about her in the newspaper you know what I mean like yeah quickly amateur stuff yeah uh, but all that's gone now it's all pro athletes yeah,
0: yeah and I guess you know that puts a lot of pressure on 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 the amateurs to kind of want to get to that level and and like you said ink those ink those sponsorship deals and yeah. you know sometimes that pressure can be so great that they turn to to doing things that are considered cheating right like
1: yeah, and even, EDs, though,
0: whatever, all think,
1: that even though there's more talk of fitness now than there was then, you know, when I was a young man, honestly, it was a different world. I used to go train sometimes. And then, say so yeah, I had to run sometimes the in Thornhill. Hill. I had to run the big hill there coming out of the valley by the Don River. I do my hill work out there. Some kids go by in their hot rods and throw a beer bottle at me. And all that kind of stuff. Hey, you <laughs> jerk! And all that kind of stuff. Because, yeah. you know, what are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah. kind of stuff. And actually, it was so uncommon, fitness in those days, that if you saw a woman, like you do today, jogging down the street, you'd pull over and ask her if you could help. Are you okay? Are you okay? Yeah. Is everything okay? Like, is something wrong? Somebody chasing you? Why are you running? <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, you, you ask her if you could help. Uh, yeah. So it's very, very different now. And you certainly wouldn't go into a restaurant in a sweatsuit. People yeah. would think you look like a jerk, you know? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So sports clothing and shoes and, and just... You know, so I've, fitness is everywhere and everybody's talking it. I'm not so sure a lot more people are actually doing it. So we have evolved a kind of huge spectator society. You know, big domed stadiums and massive crowds and big uh, funded events, you know, with pro athletes everywhere. Like I said, it's all in the newspapers. Look at tennis. My, my wife loves tennis. She watches it almost all the time. And I tell her, look, I respect their ability. These guys are amazing athletes. You know, Djokovic, people like that, Feder, mm-hmm. Fantastic athletes, I said. But I don't like watching it. And she says, why? And I said, because I don't think they'd be doing it without the money. I think they would. She said, I said, well, I don't. I said, look at Feder. I said. He gets a $500,000 appearance fee just to go to the tournament. He doesn't even have to play. He could say, well, I'm sick. Or I got injured and I withdraw he keeps yeah. his 500000 I mean, most, and also, what do they do? At the end of the tournament, they hand the guy a check for $3 bucks. There are people in this society who will never see that kind of money ever. Mm-hmm. People in this society who don't have jobs, who, you know, who are really scraping to support their families. And they see this guy being handed $3 million check for hitting a ball around. Come on, you know. I mean, at least, at least have the grace to give him the check quietly after the meet or something, you know. Give them yeah, the trophy, okay? Let them kiss it. We all like that, but but to bring the money aspect forward like that, I think is bad for sport.
0: Interesting you know? perspective, might yeah, it might uh, obviously it takes away the focus, I guess, of of the the physical accomplishments. Like you said, the trophy and the celebration, and you know, you're like, wow, look at that check at the you end. Know, of and it. the
1: young athletes—they're out of high school. They're really good athletes. them they want to get funded by by Sport Canada. Mm-hmm. I know. I used to coach some of these uh, kids, and uh, I'm down at U of T coaching some on my track team. And there's this girl there, and I, and I said, "How's it going?" She said, "Oh," she says, "I'm quitting. Long jump, in the long jump." I said, "Why are you quitting?" And she says, "Well," he says, "I didn't, I didn't make, I didn't get carded. That's the word they use for getting your sure, A or sure. B card." She said, "I didn't get carded." I said, "What's that got to do with loving your sport?" And she looks at me like I'm stupid. <laughs> Like, what do you mean? And I said, well, I'm asking you, do you love track? Do you love to come out and jump and try to beat other people, try to win or not? Well, yeah. I said, so why are you quitting? It's only taking a, an hour and a half a day. It's a simple event, you know, and it's yeah, only yeah. like four or five times a week. Well, why don't you come out and jump and have a good time? Why would you stop? See, she didn't see the question. Yeah. In other yeah. words, she didn't, she didn't actually love what she was doing. Unless she was gonna get paid for it, yeah, and, and that's
0: that's a sad thing because I think with with all sport, regardless of what it is, you know, when you go back to your childhood, when you first discover sport it's it's all about fun you don't think about anything else it's about enjoying yourself and, and you know like you had kind of alluded to not being a spectator but being a participant and and having fun and and building relationships with other people and you know some of my best friends yeah. i've met through sport through running through martial arts and everything and yeah. it's one of the great things that that i i do with my friends is hey let's go out for a run or let's go for a bike ride
2: that's and, right because you, you know, love it
0: yeah and it's just for the pure love of it and and that's why i run pretty much and you know so i think how old are you now i'll be 40
1: in less than a month <laughs> you see so you're into master. you should be into masters sports i got involved in masters uh, sports and uh, with uh, cross country skiing i was the guy who created the canadian masters cross country ski association before that if you went to a ski race there, there might be an ordinary ski race for young younger people
2: mm-hmm.
1: so say you're 40 there might be a category called old boys and they put anybody from 40 to 60 in there. Three or four of you might show up. It was useless. Why would a 60-year-old race against a 40-year-old? You know what I mean? Right,
2: right.
1: So I said, someone has to do something about this. This is a, a disgraceful, for We're made to feel like rejects. They call you old boys or veterans. You know? Uh, yeah. Whereas in track and field, masters track and field was already developed. Masters running, five-year age groups, Starting at 30, not 40, grab them right out of university, you know what I mean? Or grab them right off the national team. Let them keep enjoying themselves. So I did that for cross country skiing in Canada. And uh, that became a huge su- success, and it's still going. You can find it on the web. And then I created, I'm not bragging here, I'm just stating the historical fact. Sure. Then I, then I created the World Masters Cross Country Ski Association. And the Federation Internationale du Ski, which is called FIS, it's the world's ski governing body, they paid me a visit and they basically said, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> it was Marty Hall, big time ski coach at the time. He was the one who developed Billy Koch. Billy Koch was the guy from Vermont. At 20 years old, he was the first American to win a silver medal, any medal in cross country in, uh, in Austria in the Seyfield Olympics. Guy was sensational. So, Marty was this big stud coach, and at the time he got hired by Cross Country Canada. So, he comes down to see me in my office, you know, what the hell are you doing? I said, What do you mean, what the hell am I doing? You can't start, you can't just start in a ski association. Why not? Because we're the world governing body, he said. We govern everything, every ski sport, we control it. And I said, Well, you're not going to control us. (laughs) And he goes quiet. He said, Come on, he said, We're not going to give you a sanction. I said we don't need a sanction. Why do we want a sanction? (laughs) We're just a bunch of guys getting together to have a race in the sport that we love. Yeah. And we're going to do it, not without a sanction, you're not. I said, oh yes, we are, and we're going to do it. We're going to do it in three months. And if you want to help us, you can help us, but we're not waiting around for you because by the time you guys get around to helping us, half of us will be dead. (laughs) So, I said, what about an affiliation agreement with FIS? We'll do that if you want, but. Not if you block us in anything. We, we don't mind abiding by some of your rules and regulations to get your sanction. but we're not waiting, man. Yeah. So we did it. And that World Masters Cross-Country Ski Association, I recommend you take up the sport and try it. The next uh, World Championships in Canmore in, 19, in 2022, we had to cancel it this year for sure. COVID wonderful event we have we have uh 30 member nations now and a thousand skiers show up from all over the world for that event
2: oh master
1: sport you see is like high school sport in the sense that they're just doing it because they love it yeah no politics no drugs no money
0: no no politics no drugs no money just the love of the sport and it doesn't get better than that
1: no and they tried it the first one i i held the first one in wisconsin first world masters and I was giving out medals. I was doing everything it seemed. I am handed out medals and this guy from Czechoslovakia, he comes out holding his skis. And I said, hold it. I said, you just drop your skis, buddy. And the audience is all watching what I'm doing. And I'd say, you just drop your skis right there. He said, what do you mean? I said, we're not doing that. I said, there's no professionalism here. No one's getting paid. You do this for the love of it or we're not giving you a medal. Yeah. You know? So he put the skis down and he got his medal but that's what masters sport is about it's the true sport now in almost yeah. every area yeah. although I'll although I'll say when world masters track and field was held in Buffalo some years ago get this they had 10,000 athletes showed up for oh, track wow. and field in Buffalo you could have been one of them wow. and you know what they disqualified a 70 year old man for taking steroids you're kidding me <laughs> and, they did. Oh my goodness. So it's all trying to creep in, you know, but yeah. You have to you have to fight it, push back and just do it for the love of it. You know? Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: Well, it's it's
0: good to know that, you know, as as my age advances, that I can still uh find some competitive uh bodies to to take me on and, and you can and there's racing. no
1: standards. It doesn't matter. Like in skiing, we take world ex-world champions, which we have many of. It's wonderful to see them racing each other again. Yeah, and we take raw beginners who know nothing. Yeah. They just want to have fun.
0: Just to have fun. And that's a great thing. I've got a, a friend at work who's, uh, he's 11 years older than me. So he's 51. And uh, he still competes in uh, track cycling in the master's division and stuff like that. There you and go. Yeah. Been to the provincial championships and things well, like that. you
1: should do it and, too. He'll love running. master. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, cross-country skiing is something I, I, I did in the past in high school, not competitive, just for recreation. It was, it was really fun, a lot of work, and something I would definitely consider getting into again. I'm going to go out okay. on, a, on a Nordic okay. cross skate with Gene when I go see him.
1: Good, and then, and then call us in the fall and when the snow comes, and we'll get you going right here in King City.
0: Wonderful. You put me, put me to the test to put me on some time trials.
1: <laughs> wow, I was having a good time, yeah. yeah.
0: Bill, I can't thank you enough for coming on and, and having this discussion. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's such an honor to have uh, guests like you with your background and, and just letting our conversation go where it goes and really appreciate everything you've offered me and my audience. And I hope to talk to you again soon sometime. And one last thing I'll leave you with, Bill, is my parting phrase here at Trail Tales ARP, and that is to run
1: wild, my friend. Uh, uh, go for it, Carpe DMC's the day. That's right. Listen, so nice to meet you, uh, even if only by Zoom, and I hope to meet you in person soon.
0: Trailtails ERP now has a brand new YouTube channel. You can head over there through our website and check out all our latest videos. And please don't forget to subscribe. If you could also leave us a review on wherever you get our podcast from, that would be greatly appreciated. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at trail underscore tails underscore ARP. And you can also join our Strava running group at trail tails ARP. Thank you so much for your continued support. Run wild.